Well, good morning. It's really good to be with you. It would be much better to be with you physically, uh, but in this new world, at least uh, I can be with you virtually uh, in preaching today. Let me pray as we look at this passage in Luke 24 together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your life-giving word, and we pray, Lord, that you might bring us deep to our hearts and lives. Lord, encourage us, we pray today, in your words. Send us from here by your Spirit to live our lives to your praise and glory, and to grow each day in our knowledge and love of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start with a, a question. What frightens you? In the late 1970s, Desmond Tutu said this. He said, I believe fervently that the church is going to be the salvation of Africa. If the church fails, then I am frightened for the future. I think what frightens me in this generation, in the UK as well as in Africa, is people going to their graves not knowing Christ. Because the church, we, you and I, fail in preaching the gospel faithfully. Because the church fails to preach God's word. We fail to proclaim the gospel. What frightens me is the church in this generation slowly starving and dying because we fail to hear God's word. We fail to grow into maturity and joy and love of Christ every day, every week, every year of our year. And we fail because we neglect the one great means that God has given us for growth by the power of his spirit which is his revelation in Christ given to us in his word, the Bible. And what we discover in this story in Luke is that Jesus' focus when he rises from the dead and walks with these guys on this road to Emmaus is not another parable about money or a commentary on the poor and marginalised. Jesus doesn't feed a thousand or walk on water or raise the dead. In fact, it seems he does one main thing. And Luke mentions it in this story, and he mentions it again and again and again throughout the book of Acts. And that is, Jesus teaches the word. Luke doesn't tell many stories after Jesus' resurrection, and this one is the longest. So clearly on Luke's heart and mind, this is what he longs for us to understand. And Luke tells us this story about two disciples who were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus in the, in the afternoon. And they're despondent, they're downcast, they're disappointed, they feel completely let down. They don't know what to think. They don't know who to turn to. And like you and I so often, they're focused on the current problems they're facing. And then as Jesus comes and walks with these guys, he keeps his identity a secret. And as they're chatting and discussing, no knowledge who's walking with them, Cleopas tells Jesus about the great sadness that they have, about the conundrum they're facing, about Jesus' death. Verse 19, he says this, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They'd had such great hopes, but now they're confused. All their hopes seem to have come, excuse me, all their hopes seem to have come to nothing. Now, think for a moment, whether you're young or old, what would you expect Jesus to do? Think about it. 
Two disciples feeling so sad, they don't understand what's gone on or what's going on, and Jesus comes and walks along beside them. If you were Jesus, what would you have done? How would you have helped these two guys? How would you, what would you have done to transform them, to bring them a joy and a confidence, knowing that Jesus is the Lord of life itself? Sin has been paid for. How would you love and serve and strengthen these disciples on that road? Well, it's often puzzled me. Why didn't Jesus just say, look, here are my wrists. Here's where the nails went in. Put Put your hand into my side like he did to Doubting Thomas. Or better still, why didn't he just begin to glow in the dark or be transfigured in glory? Why didn't he show that he was God? Why didn't he pull stars out of space? Why didn't he show them the mighty legions of angels in glorious worship of him or the praise of heaven or bring terrible judgment on his enemies? But he doesn't. Instead, verse 25, we read this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As Jesus comes to these downcast disciples, these sad followers, as Jesus comes to equip and inspire them, to encourage them and strengthen them, knowing that this will change their lives forever, Jesus takes these disciples to the Old Testament. He takes them to God's word. As these disciples come to understand God's word better, so they'll understand Jesus better. So they'll be transformed to know him, to love him, to serve him, to proclaim the good news. So the first take-home message from this passage, especially for our lives today as we look through Luke, is this. And maybe you can test one another over lunch today. Know Jesus. No, sorry, know your Bible and you will know Jesus. Know your Bible and you will know Jesus. I would love to have been there. Wouldn't you? In fact, imagine being there even before Jesus' resurrection. Imagine getting to hear him preach, occasionally in church, in the synagogue, often outside on a hill, in a boat to small groups of crowds, using children to teach adults, jokes about planks and specks, Pharisees and tax collectors, observing the widow's might, getting challenged about taxes, breaking social taboos, eating with tax collectors and sinners. Imagine that evening as the sun is getting lower in the sky and they're walking along, listening to an Old Testament Bible study by Jesus himself. You can imagine him explaining to the guys as they walk along the road, perhaps as the light begins to fade. Did you know that the Christ, the Messiah, is actually the serpent crusher in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Have you thought that he's also the Passover lamb of Exodus 12? Or he's the prophet like Moses proclaimed in Deuteronomy 18? Or the promised king that will sit on David's throne forever in the covenant that God made with David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel? Did you know he's also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34, the son and the king of Psalm 2, the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek from Psalm 110? It would have been 
awesome. Or perhaps as you're about to study it, imagine Jesus teaching them Daniel. He might have said things like, remember those great kings and the kingdoms. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 2, a rock that's not made by human hands, smashing the statue of the kingdoms, and then it grows to become a kingdom that lasts forever. Remember what you heard about the kingdom of God being at hand. That's the kingdom. Or remember Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. He describes God's kingdom as an eternal kingdom. Or remember Darius's delight in the God in Daniel 6, whose dominion never ends, who rescues and saves, who performs signs and wonders in in the heavens and on the earth. Or remember the vision in Daniel chapter 7, where he sees someone like a son of man approach the ancient of days and receive authority and glory and sovereign power, and all the nations worship him. Imagine Jesus working through the scriptures. Imagine having them explained as God intended, pointing to his Messiah, pointing to Jesus, suddenly realizing the whole Bible is about Jesus. Know the Bible and you will know Jesus. Listen to how these two men reflect at the end on their evening walk, when they get to the end of their walk, when the, when the penny finally drops, when their eyes are opened, they've spent their last couple of hours with Jesus. Verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And open the scriptures to us. I'm going to do something now that's very normal in South Africa. Might be a little bit unusual for you. But please turn to your neighbour and with a big smile and encourage them. With a big smile and encourage them with these words. Know the Bible and you will know Jesus. Just take a moment. Turn to your neighbour. It'll help you remember. And with a big smile, encourage them with these words. Neighbour, know your Bible and you will know Jesus. Know your Bible, and you will know Jesus. Something that happens at most church services here in South Africa as people encourage one another. These two friends now have a whole new understanding. Their whole outlook on life is transformed. They're equipped to tell others who Jesus is. They're equipped to explain why he had to die. They're equipped to explain all of Jesus from the Old Testament. And their hearts are set on fire. It's almost certainly dark at this point. And they run and they run and they run the 11 kilometres back to Jerusalem. These guys now know Jesus. They know why he died. They know he's alive. They know he's the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures and nothing will stop them telling others. There's a realisation and a joy that comes with us that just overflows. There is one more thing, though, from this passage that is absolutely key and essential. And without it, all Bible study is meaningless in the end. And it comes from the study of scripture. In fact, it's the main point of scripture. And it's the one thing that Jesus wants to focus these men's hearts on that night. The guys are disappointed. They're downcast. They're despondent. And as Jesus explains the scriptures to them, he takes their focus away from their problems. He takes their understanding of why Jesus died, why he was crucified, away from the chief priests and the rulers. Jesus' understanding of his death 
The understanding of Jesus is not found in the malicious jealousy of the priests or in the political expediency of the Romans. It's found rather in the revealed will of God. See, Jesus' death was not the sad death of an unwilling victim. It was not simply the death of another martyr. It was planned from eternity. It was foretold in the Old Testament. It was the very reason that Jesus came, to give his life as a ransom for many. The one major point that Jesus wants these two guys to understand comes out. Look at verse 26. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? See, know the Bible and you will know Jesus. Know Jesus and you will know he had to suffer. Know Jesus and you will know he had to suffer. It's something the disciples hadn't yet grasped. It must have seemed like a contradiction in terms to them. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel had to suffer. But that's where Jesus took the men that night. And that's where God's word will take you. It'll take you to Jesus and then it'll take you to all that he's done for us in dying for us on the cross. It seems this was one of the hardest things for the disciples to grasp, that Jesus was the king. Jews look for power, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The anointed one of God, the Christ, had to suffer. I think today as well, people often want God to prove himself to them. It's normally when they request it by some magical or supernatural act that they're thinking of writing on the wall, an angel, transfiguration, Jesus appearing in glory. It seems crazy that when God reveals himself most intimately and most deeply and most gloriously, it is a man dying on a cross. What kind of God is this? And yet Jesus insists, verse 25, how foolish you are, he says to them, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Know your Bible and you will know Jesus. Know Jesus and you will know he had to suffer. He came, as foretold and prepared through the whole, all of the whole of the Old Testament, to die for you and for me. In our place, for our sins, so we can be forgiven. So we might have eternal life. So we might, along with those early apostles, study God's word, delight in him more and more, and then take this good news to our families, to our street, to our school friends, to our college, to our work, our gym, our Zoom calls, our FaceTimes, our WhatsApps, to our country, to the world, to UK, to Africa. My prayer is the Lord might strengthen each one of us in delighting in God's word, that we might delight in Jesus and delight in him who died for us. And as we do that, my prayer is that our heart will be set on fire and we might proclaim the gospel from the rooftops, as it were, that this generation, whether you're in England, somewhere else in the UK or here in Africa, do not go to their graves without having an opportunity to hear and respond to our glorious Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to take a moment of quiet. Perhaps you could, in your heart, think, is there someone that you could tell about Jesus? And is there a way that day by day in life, you could grow in understanding your Bible? Just give that one thought, and then I'll pray in just a moment.
Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, who so powerfully works in us, you might open your word, that we might see wonder, open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your word. Lord, give us a real desire to find and discover the glories of Christ in your word. And then we pray, as we do, you'd set our hearts on fire. And you might use us, Lord, weak as we are, nervous as we are, fearful as we are, you might nevertheless use us to share this good news with others. Lord, please may our lives be lived to your glory in these ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.